This is Education Matters, brought to you by the Ohio Education Association. Season two of Education Matters starts right here, right now. I'm Katie Olmstead, part of the communications team for the Ohio Education Association. And I am so excited to get back to work on our podcast on behalf of the 120,000 teachers, education support professionals, and higher ed faculty members represented by the OEA. While many of our members were out of school for summer break, I was out of the office on maternity leave. And I'm just now catching up on all that happened over the last couple months. To help get us all up to speed, we're turning to our fearless leader, OEA President Scott DeMauro. And to borrow a line from the hit musical Hamilton, I'm asking... So what did I miss? What did I miss? Scott DeMauro, thank you for joining us once again. Regular listeners will remember the last time we checked in with you, the final episode of the previous season, we were waiting for the Ohio legislature to decide the fate of the fair school funding plan. What happened with that? Well, the good news is that the fair school funding formula was passed as part of the final budget approved by both the House and the Senate. Speaker Cup held firm in negotiations with the Senate in the last hours. Uh, and so the conference committee report did include the formula. And it's a formula that we were advocating for because it did a couple of important things. First, it calculated the cost that the state guaranteed every school district to receive on a per student basis based on the actual costs, things like class size and educators and technology and transportation and all those kinds of things, the actual cost of providing a high quality education to every student. And then the second piece that it does is that it fairly distributes state aid to school districts based on their ability to pay much more so than in previous formulas. So not just taking into account property values and property taxpayers, but also looking at income levels of communities and whether or not a given school district's population can afford the local taxes necessary to meet those those costs. So, uh, So that was the good news. The bad news is that only about a third of the cost was funded in this budget. So in theory, it's a six year phase in. We got the first two years, the six years, but there's no commitment in this legislation for what comes two years from now, what comes four years from now. So it is going to be critical that we continue to put pressure on future legislatures uh, in future budget bills to make sure that this wasn't just a one-time bonus, but instead was the basis for a sustained commitment to fairly funding all of our public schools across the state of Ohio. The irony, of course, is that lawmakers were unwilling to shackle future legislatures with these expenditures, but they had no problem giving them future tax breaks to sort of figure out how do we make sure? What can we be doing right now to make sure that that funding is there beyond two years? Well, there were there were hundreds of millions of dollars in new uh, tax breaks that were provided. Uh, the lion's share of those tax breaks going to people who are the wealthiest in our society. Uh, so they were very much unnecessary, but, but yes, they, they did that. And by the way, they also took the lid off of uh, charter schools and dramatically increased vouchers for families to send their kids to private schools. So while there were some gains given with one hand, there were things that were taken away with the other hand. It's up to us to make sure that we continue to pay attention to school funding. 
I think we have a great opportunity with the federal funds that are coming into the state. Uh, thanks to President Biden's Build Back Better plan and the American Rescue Plan in particular, we're going to see a total of four and a half billion dollars in federal money uh, that's coming into the state of Ohio that's going to provide schools with a lot of opportunities, not just to meet the needs of students related to the pandemic, but really create those building blocks in addressing the needs of the whole child. We have to make sure that those one-time investments are sustained. And the way we do that is by electing friends of public education, regardless of political party, to the House, to the Senate, and to statewide offices, including governor, in 2022. Because of redistricting and how that all shook out, the unconstitutional maps that we saw come out of that commission we're going to be dealing with a Republican supermajority again moving forward. How hopeful are you that even in that, we could have friends of public education making sure our students get what they need? Well, it's, it is much more challenging to have people that are going to be responsive to the needs and interests of their constituents if they aren't in districts where they have to worry about their reelection. Uh, when politicians draw their own maps and choose their own voters, and the only competition they have is from more extreme forces in their own parties, uh, then you don't get good legislation, and you certainly don't get good legislation for public education. But the maps that have been drawn are being challenged in court, and you know I'm hopeful that we're going to see some improvements based on uh, the Supreme Court hopefully upholding the constitution of the state of Ohio and upholding principles of fairness. And regardless of the map, uh, the truth is that in 2022, all 99 members of the House are up for election. Uh, Half of the 33 member Senate is up for election and all statewide offices are up for election. If educators make their voices heard, and by the way, educators are the most trusted voices in their communities, we can have a big impact, uh, but it's up to us to start organizing now and to make sure that we're holding politicians accountable for their decisions as we move forward in the weeks and months to come. In the weeks to come, especially, we're looking at two particularly alarming bills, House Bill 322 and House Bill 327. They're kind of moving through in tandem. The most serious attack on public education since Senate Bill 5, really. What can you tell me about those bills and, and, and what we're able to do to fight back against those? Yeah, so these bills, which you know, purport to ban the teaching or promotion of divisive concepts related to race, uh, are really limitations on the professionalism of educators and their attacks on honesty and education. Uh, what they would do is, is set up a mechanism so that Uh, certain things that are deemed to be too controversial uh, in the minds of some people and the words of the legislation. By the way, the legislation is written very ambiguously. Uh, So divisive is really in the eyes of the beholder. You know, any parent, you know, or any person in a community could make a complaint against the teacher saying that, you know, the way you're teaching your curriculum is offensive. Uh, making me uncomfortable. And so I'm going to go after your license. I'm going to go after your school's funding. I'm going to go after your job. It just would create a a chilling culture of fear in our schools and undercut the ability of educators to give students what they need, which is a high quality education, uh, which pays attention to the needs of all of our students, regardless of race, regardless of family background, uh, which encourages attention to equity, Uh, attention to diversity, attention to inclusion in our schools, 
Uh, and for me as a social studies teacher, I think, you know, these bills, if they were to pass, would really call into question how I teach my own curriculum. As a high school social studies teacher in history classes, it was important for me to teach the good, the bad, the ugly of, of our nation's past so that my students could have multiple perspectives and develop the critical thinking and problem solving skills that they need to be good citizens so that we can collectively make our country even stronger than it is. So this is, you put it, I think, very aptly when you said this is the biggest threat to educators since Senate Bill 5. Senate Bill 5 was an attack on our collective bargaining rights. This is fundamentally an attack on academic freedom and an attack on honesty and education. We are working very hard. And, and what's encouraging to me is that I am seeing members all across the state uh, who are speaking out, who are very concerned. They understand the implications of this legislation. We're going to do everything we can to defeat it. By the way, uh, we're going to have to be extra vigilant because um, we know that that legislators who get a little uncomfortable when people come to the state house and speak speak out and and give opposition testimony that is really hard to refute uh, look for other ways to sneak these kinds of provisions into other pieces of legislation and so we're going to have to make sure that that doesn't happen. We also stand ready that if this kind of legislation does pass that as a union, we are committed to standing up for the legal rights of every single one of our members. Well, you have to think, especially as a social studies teacher, about all of the things you couldn't teach that are part of standard curriculum if these bills were to pass. I, somebody once told me, you know, in the same breath where you talk about the atrocities of the Holocaust, you'd have to include Holocaust deniers. And as a, a descendant of a Holocaust survivor, I am so deeply disturbed by that idea. And that's just a small part of all of this. Right. It's just, it's similar to debates that we've seen in the past around the science curriculum and um, this idea that, that evolution is just a theory. Uh, and so therefore we have to teach creationism in schools. We know if anybody who knows anything about science, that that is so far from the truth, but yet some people who are misinformed, you know, push, push a a, a personal agenda or an ideological agenda to move us down that path. This is happening in the same way with, with literature. It's happening in the same way with, with history. Um, yeah. As a, as, as a history teacher, how do you basically say that both sides have equal standing when you're talking about the Holocaust or when you're talking about uh, slavery, when you're talking about the Jim Crow South, or when you're talking about, uh, de facto segregation and, and really, uh, you know, racist housing practices uh, that persist in many aspects of our society today. So we have to teach the truth. Uh, we have to do it in a balanced way. We have to do it in a way that's age appropriate and that is aligned with our learning standards that are set by the state and aligned with the curriculum that's adopted by local school districts. But we can't have our hands tied. We can't be in a situation where we're constantly looking over our shoulders out of fear in a way that will limit our ability to give students the education that they need and deserve. One thing you brought up is people denying the science. And honestly, I think we've seen a lot of people denying the science, not, not about evolution, about masks, about vaccines. This whole pandemic has really shined a spotlight on, on people who are not on board with what the science is telling us. How are educators, how are students holding up as we are now in the third school year to be affected by the pandemic? 
Well, it's funny. I think back to March of 2020 when when the pandemic started and, and we all flipped on a dime uh, from in-person to remote instruction. And, and, you know, as painful as it was, there was some clarity around the things that were necessary in order to keep everybody safe. And uh, for a period of time, uh, those decisions were all being driven by the science. And we saw some consistency, certainly from state leadership and across the state in terms of the things they needed to do to make sure that learning conditions were what they needed to be. Unfortunately, the pandemic has been politicized. And for some people, uh, science has been thrown out the window. And instead, there is this idea to, to score political points uh, by denying the dangers of the pandemic. And, and in reality, we see that with the Delta variant uh, running rampant right now, that the people who are more at risk than ever before are the young people, uh, the people that we serve in our schools, including the half of our students who are under the age of 11 who can't even be vaccinated. And so we have an obligation to make sure that learning is happening, that it's and and also, we know we want to have learning happening in person. But when schools don't do what everybody is recommending, uh, from the governor to the CDC, uh, to children's hospitals, to pediatricians, uh, to health authorities at all levels, and require masks, then we see large outbreaks of COVID. And as a result of those outbreaks, we see schools having to close their doors, having to switch to remote learning or use calamity days because they just don't have the ability to keep learning going in the schools. Wearing a mask is simple. Being vaccinated, if you're able to be vaccinated, is simple. Uh, we do those simple steps so that we can not just protect ourselves, but protect one another, protect our students. And you know, I, I tip my hat to those school boards who have been making difficult decisions in the face of some really chaotic and disruptive uh, meetings where people have been coming and, and protesting. But those decisions are right. Every single district ought to be requiring masks, uh, at least till we get through this uh, spike in COVID and, and the uh, Delta variant. Every single district. And that makes it so much more disappointing that it feels like state leadership has sort of washed their hands of these decisions. A statewide mask mandate would solve so many problems. It's frustrating. It's frustrating that the governor is not stepping up and doing uh, what he needs to do. Uh, that he's not showing the kind of leadership that he did a year ago. And a big reason for that is that he's unwilling to stand up to the extremists in his own party, and particularly the extremists in the legislature. Uh, when you see the legislature taking steps to limit the use of vaccines, when you, take the, when you see the legislature even considering banning districts from requiring masks uh, and certainly opposing any effort by the governor or the State Department of Health uh, from imposing common sense, science-based uh, protections, we've got a problem. And, and you know, again, looking ahead to uh, elections, we need to be electing people who care about our students. We need to electing people who are going to put politics aside and follow the science and do what needs to be done in order to keep learning going, in order to keep our schools open. Some of the same people that, that were most critical of the shutdown last year are the very people that are making decisions that are preventing schools from being open now. We need leadership at the state level and we need leadership at the local level, people who care about the students and keeping schools open. We are seeing, I think at last check, we have about 100 members statewide, 100 educators 
are running for their local school boards. What do you think about that? I think it's really exciting. I mean, school boards are critically important to the quality of education. Uh, You have a strong school board uh, that can make the difference between being supported as an educator or having people that are going to, you know, put obstacles in the way of your ability to serve your students successfully. And when educators step up and they're committed to doing what's best for the entire system, and, and you don't have people that are, that are running for school board because they have a personal ax to grind, but because they recognize how important it is to create those conditions and provide those supports uh, that will set everybody up for success. Students are winners, educators are winners. Certainly makes a difference uh, when we're in bargaining uh, and we go to the negotiating table and we are working with members of school boards who appreciate the role of the union and who appreciate the work of educators. So. I'm excited. I think it's more people running for board than, than I've ever seen in, in my experience. And in some cases, these are very competitive elections. So we're in a unique position. Educators are one of the only people in society that get to choose their bosses uh, through the election process. And so if we make our voices heard, if we, uh, as the trusted members of our community, speak out in support of people who we know are going to be pro-public education, who are going to be pro-student, then we can really make a big difference. And so I encourage everybody, pay attention to those local school board races. And especially if your local association has recommended candidates for election, do all you can to work for them and support them and get them elected to their local school board. Scott tomorrow, thank you so much. We will be checking in again. Thanks, Katie. Always a pleasure. Of course, we are paying attention to those local school board races. Now through Election Day, we're hearing from a few of the educators who are running for seats on their local school boards to find out why they are the best people for the job. Hey, friends. My name is David Bothist, and I'm running for school board at the Talawanda School District in Oxford, Ohio. I'm a fifth grade science teacher in a very urban inner city neighborhood of the Hamilton City School District, and I am an OEA member. I am running for school board because the promise to provide our three adopted children the best possible life led us to Oxford and the Talawanda School District. I am running to preserve and protect what makes the small town school experience so special. Right now, there's a lot of division in our communities and many others throughout the state. While mask mandates and vaccines are hot topics of the moment, The deeper issue dividing communities stems from the failure of the state of Ohio to adhere to a decades-old Supreme Court ruling deeming current state funding strategies unconstitutional. Because our state fails to abide by the law, districts have to cut essential education services and pass the hardship to taxpayers and levies to provide what should be protected as free and appropriate public education for all children. Cuts in services, but increases in taxes, not only confuses some taxpayers, it also divides friends, neighbors, and even family members. To me, this is our greatest challenge, not only as a school board, but as a nation in general. But I'm no stranger to challenges. I'm a 9-11 era veteran serving in the U.S. Navy as a hospital corpsman attached to the 2nd Marine Division. I'm a first-generation college student with a master's degree in public service administration. 
My husband and I adopted three African-American siblings from Indiana's foster care system 11 years ago and moved to Southwest Ohio to introduce our children to small town values and the importance of community. However, two white gay dads with three black children wasn't well received by many people in our area. Luckily, our oldest son is a National Honor Society scholar and the high school varsity football team captain with Ivy League offers. Apparently, that alone gives him a pass. If you know, you know. I am currently a public school teacher with experience teaching in public and charter elementary schools, private and public undergraduate and graduate institutions. We have three children in the Talawanda School District and own properties in the city of Oxford and surrounding rural townships, including a 15-acre mini farm. My name is David Bothes, and I am running for Talawanda School Board because I have a lot of skin in this game and a very important promise to keep. Coming up next week, we're taking a deeper dive into one school board race in Hilliard, Ohio, and talking to two educators who are vying for seats in that contentious contest. New Education Matters episodes come out every Thursday morning, and you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. If you have thoughts you'd like to share with us on the podcast, email us at educationmatters at ohea.org and connect anytime on social media. We're at OhioEA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, stay well. Stay well.